Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Today, we have Matt Griffith and Chris Osman from Centura Wealth. How are you guys? Doing well. How about yourself, Wendy? Doing, I'm doing good here. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. But we have a guest as well. So I'm going to let you do the introductions. Great. Thank you. And before I introduce our esteemed guest, I want to give just a brief overview of what we're going to be discussing today. So a uh, big presidential uh, election uh, on the docket and really want to dig into the potential outcomes and rather than get really bogged down in a lot of the noise and hoopla and the spectacle we're going to see unfold over the course of next year from a political standpoint, want to spend today really diving into potential investment implications leading up to the election, as well as post-election potential tax reform and then also uh, investment implications. So with that, I'm honored to introduce our guest speaker today, Michael Townsend, who's Managing Director, Legislative and Regulatory Affairs for Charles Schwab and Company. Michael, thanks for coming on today and being our guest. I would love if you could give our audience your professional background. Sure thing. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Great to, to see you and, and talk to you. Um, yeah, I'm Mike Townsend, and I am part of Charles Schwab's little team in Washington, D.C., and it's our job to kind of watch what's going on on Capitol Hill and the halls of Congress, at the White House, at the regulatory agencies, and really figure out what it all means for investors. I, I kind of think of my job as cutting through all the noise and the nonsense of Washington and helping people figure out what's really important to pay attention to. And most of it is noise and nonsense, frankly. So um, today we'll talk about some of the things that are actually uh, worth paying attention to. But I've been here at Charles Schwab for 23 years. Weird to say that out loud. I've actually been in Washington for 30 years, uh, worked for two senators back uh, in the 90s, and uh, just really enjoy this crazy city because it's never boring. <laughs> right. Not not much boredom lately, right, Mike? And, and that's why Chris and I are so excited to have you on and, and our listeners, I think, will be as well. Let's talk a little bit about the current political landscape. And we could spend hours, obviously. We're trying to keep this part short so we can get into the the good stuff. But, you know, so many things going on. They ousted the Speaker of the House recently, replaced him. Um, you know, we, we've got a lot of geopolitical things happening across the world. You know, as we look at, I mean, again, you pick whatever topic you want, but what, if any, I mean, is it going to be, hey, this is next election in 2024 is going to be about domestic policy? Is it going to be more about foreign policy? What, what do you think? How does this all Jacob, I mean, we even have a potential government shutdown here within the next week, possibly. Trying to look at even beyond that, of, of how does how do you see this shaping up? Of what what are the important things in twenty twenty four? Yeah, well, it's crazy right now. I mean, I, yeah, as I said, I've been here thirty years. I think October of twenty twenty three was the nuttiest month I've seen in Washington with the uh, ousting of the speaker, which was unprecedented, and then twenty two days of paralysis while they tried to figure out if anyone would take that job. And uh, they finally found uh, someone relatively unknown, Congressman from Louisiana, Mike Johnson, is now the uh, Speaker of the House, and he is kind of drinking from the fire hose in the short term. Uh, as you mentioned, we've got a government shutdown looming in, in just a week or so. 
Uh, you've got geopolitical crises going on all over the place, and you have a, a big request for emergency spending uh, from the president for Ukraine, for Israel, for border security, for China-Taiwan tensions. Um, so there's there's really a lot going on sort of all at the uh, at the same time. Uh, but as to how all of this will play into the 2024 election, typically when you get to a presidential election, voters become very domestic issue focused. Um, foreign policy issues, and, and we have big foreign policy issues going on, but they don't tend to move voters uh, when it comes down to it in a presidential election. So, you know, I, I do think the potential government shutdown uh, will will play uh, potentially in the election, uh, because I think even if we don't have a shutdown here uh, in the next week or so, very likely to have one in early 2024 if they end up kicking the can down the road a bit. And, you know, I, I think with any election, the the, the real big factors are the unknowns. I mean, do you have another international crisis? Does China and Taiwan blow up in some way? Does the Israel-Hamas situation, you know, engulf more of the Middle East and all of a sudden you're, you know, affecting oil production and, and uh, that sort of thing? And then obviously here at home, we have a lot of uncertain issues around the election itself. Uh, former President Trump and has a bunch of legal issues uh, that that could throw our, a wrench in the works. How much does inflation come down? When does the Fed start c- uh, cutting interest rates? So there's just a lot of uncertainties going into this election year that could have a big impact. I just I think it's really hard to predict which one will sort of rise to the top. You, you never know as you head into an election year. Yeah, no, no, agree completely, Mike. I think you you summed it up very well, uh, and you, you'd hit on something. You know, I want to ask a follow up question on, and that was really the the development of criminal charges against candidate Trump, and you know, conversely, the the age of, of Biden and the perception of his deterioration of health. It, the speculation: Do one or both even run? And if one were to not how would the market potentially digest either Biden or Trump dropping out? You know, one of the challenges that people like me who analyze politics and elections are having is that the 2024 presidential election is shaping up to be unlike any other. Uh, There just aren't historic precedents for some of this stuff that we're talking about. I mean, you have the age of not only Biden, but but Trump would also be the oldest uh, president if if, uh, he were elected again. Uh, Trump's legal troubles, obviously, totally uncharted waters. And I think this just makes the, this hard to to predict. My operating assumption right now is that we will have a, a Biden-Trump rematch in 2024. Is it possible that one or both uh, drop out? I, I suppose. Uh, but that seems unlikely. Certainly, there are a lot of Democrats right now that are concerned about the president's age and, and stamina. But even now, it would be complicated. I mean, deadlines to get on the ballots in some of the early states have already passed. Uh, on the Republican side, you know, former President Trump is clearly the front runner. I mean, he's 30, 40 points uh, ahead of of the opposition uh, on the primary side in, in every poll. You know, will things change if he's found guilty in one of these legal cases? Maybe, but, you know, we just don't know how that'll play. I, I think what has really struck me you know, I talk to clients and investors and conferences all over the country. The number one question I have been getting for the last few months is, can we get someone else? And it comes from both sides of the political spectrum. And there are just a, a lot of voters who are really unenthusiastic about this potential matchup. 
And I just think that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, do they do they complain for uh, months and then ultimately, you know, vote the way they would have voted anyway? Or uh, do they do something in, and does a third party candidate or an independent candidate suddenly start to attract attention? So a lot of unknowns in this one. Yeah, a lot's happening on the presidential side. And then, you know, moving to Congress, you know, I, I thought we'd spend a little bit. I mean, the Senate has so today's majority in the Senate, sl- a slim margin for the Democrats. I believe there's 34 Senate seats up for election in 2024. Currently, 11 of those held by Republicans, 20 by Democrats, three independents that are that caucus with the Democrats. You know, I think the the I'd like to hear a little bit about the you know the key battleground states. But even as we're preparing for this. Joe Manchin out of West Virginia announces he's not going to run for re-election there. So, I mean, that that was maybe a, one of the potential battleground states. I guess maybe give us your thoughts around that, how the how the Senate shakes out. Sure. I actually pay more attention in some ways to the battle for control of Congress, because at the end of the day, I mean, that's really where the policies that might impact investors are going to be decided. And uh, as you said, in the Senate, um, Republicans need to gain just two seats to take over the majority. I'm pretty sure they just gained one uh, yesterday when uh, Joe Manchin uh, stepped down or or said he wasn't going to run in West Virginia, uh, the reddest of red states. He was actually one of three Democratic senators who represent a red state. All three are on are all three of those seats are up for election. So West Virginia, um, also in Ohio and Montana. So those are two uh, more really challenging environments for uh, uh, for Democrats. And the reality of this particular playing field for the Senate is it's just a huge advantage for the Republicans. As you mentioned, 11 Republican seats on the ballot, none of them are really competitive. Um, maybe Florida, maybe Texas, but um, even those I think would be be kind of long shots. So I think there's a really good chance that Republicans take over the Senate. Uh, what's interesting is that I think there's a really good chance that Democrats take over the House And actually, the whole fiasco of the last month or so probably helped that because, you know, Republicans really went through a period of just looking totally dysfunctional that they can't they can't organize themselves to to run anything. And I think that's that's going to haunt them uh, going into uh, into the campaign. So if that happened, you know, we would potentially have a split Congress again, but split in the opposite way. And that is actually unprecedented. We have never had an election in which the House and Senate have flipped in opposite directions in the same election. So it would be really, really uh, unusual. And, you know, obviously, if, if that was the outcome, then, you know, I think we'd be stuck again in that kind of gridlock mode, which is going to be really, really difficult with some of the big issues that we have looming out there. You know, I think we'll talk more about tax issues in particular, but a lot of things post-election that will be really difficult in a split Congress. Yeah, if, if we get the split again, like I say, maybe both both flipping and you have gridlock, you know, one of the, so let, let's dig in, like you said, the tax and legislative issues. You know, we, we do a lot around planning for our clients. A lot of that gets into tax planning, income tax planning, estate gift wealth transfer planning you know of course the big big thing is the 2017 tax cuts and jobs act some of those provisions of the act were sun are are will sunset gen one of 2026 and so i mean already if you kind of play it out and think okay the, historically in 2017 it took them even with the congress and white house aligned it still took them until the end of the year to get anything passed and even going back to 20 
you know, prior legislation. You know, there's kind of a history of it. It, it does take them a while to get in place. So in most recently in 2020, they didn't get anything passed, right? The Build Back Better just kind of went away. So thinking about that and and so for those out there that, you know, we talk about marginal tax rates, they're set to go go up back to where they were, you know, a big one for the estate exemptions. Currently, you know, each individual has about 13 million or, or going into next year, we'll have a little over 13 million each, $26 million for married filing joint. Uh, that's going to get cut in half. You know, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, whether we, I guess, whether we have a split gridlock or not, I mean, do you, is the sentiment there that, hey, they're going to kind of let this stuff pat or sunset and point the finger back at everyone else because, hey, we need more revenues? I don't, I don't know. What's the general sentiment in Washington around this? Yeah, it, obviously, it's really hard to know kind of how this is going to play out until we see what the post-election landscape is. But this is one of those things. It's going to be the biggest issue that the new Congress has to deal with in 2025, because the clock, as you said, is going to tick throughout that year to the end of it. And like a lot of things, you know, this isn't a straight line. This is a, a bunch of issues that have not exact partisan, you know, support all the way. And and I'd actually point to the estate tax as the best example of that. I typically call the estate tax the least partisan tax issue in Washington. And the reason for that is that there are lots of Democrats who represent districts and states where you've got family farms and big ranches and multi-generation family-owned businesses for whom the estate tax is a big deal. And so that's one where, you know, if you did have a split Congress where something is going to be very complicated to get through, maybe they end up breaking that tax job tax of uh, the 2017 tax bill into pieces and you know letting some of it expire democrats obviously want to uh, make that top rate go back to 39.6 for example but maybe you make a trade for some estate tax changes that aren't so dramatic you know either you extend it at, at its level now or maybe you lower the exemption amount but not all the way down to you know cutting it in half or, or something like that. So I could see the estate tax being part of a, a a kind of trade-off. The thing at the end of the day here is it, you know, this gets into the the whole fight that's going on over over government spending and the federal deficit and and that sort of thing. And you know, the math just doesn't work. You you can't cut spending enough to make a real dent in the deficit. And ultimately you're gonna have to raise taxes on somebody. And, you know, nobody really wants to do that, but uh, but the math is going to argue that they're going to have to. So I think that that 2025 debate is going to really be a difficult one that's probably going to see you know, different pieces expire and, and maybe some get extended. But there won't be a sort of all or nothing either way. Yeah. Are there are there are there areas that may be a little less partisan like that? I mean, even, you know, we we see these sort of common themes come up and, you know, I'll, I'll use a couple of examples like real estate, being on the 1031 exchange, you know, again, these show up in some proposals and things never, never go into a lot of eliminate, but it, I don't know, are there examples like that? Of course, recent years the you know, you know, kind of the, the Peter Thiel of, Hey, you get all this, this private investment in a Roth IRA, you know, and that's okay. We're going to stop private investments in IRAs and and things like that. So I don't know, are there, are there other examples uh, or, or or do you see any of those things like, hey, these are definitely on the chopping block, block. These are less partisan issues. Or is it or is it again? Hey, it's so divided that <laughs> who knows? Yeah, it's funny. I, I think a lot of these things, you think there's some kind of big policy debate going on here. And actually, it's just straight math. 
you know, these are people who want to do X, and so they need to cut spending from Y. And so they're trying to figure out where to get that, you know, to get that spending. And you see all these different things, whether it's, you know, threats to the tax exemption and muni bonds, or, you know, you, you talked about the 1031 exchanges. I mean, I, there's not a great philosophical debate going on about 1031 exchanges, right? This is just a, a math thing. Can we can we get some revenue from this? And, and so I, I think, you know, particularly in the area of Roths, right? I mean, the R- Roths are this incredible loser for the government in the long term, right? But the the reality is the way budgeting and, and the process works in Washington, you have sort of this 10-year window where you have to make the numbers work. And so Roths are great for that because you get, you know, the tax revenue up front. So everything you see, everything's sort of heading towards Roths because it makes the numbers work. It's it's a sort of game that that Washington uh, loves to play. And, you know, nobody worries about what's going to happen 30, 40 years down the road when, you know, all those uh, uh, Ross are, are suddenly not generating any any revenue. But, you know, I when I look at all these different things, you tend to see them come up in these in the sort of initial bills, right? And then they slowly get uh, get dropped along along the way. And, you know, sometimes you see some nibbling around the edges, um, advanced refunding bonds, um, for bonds, for example, you know, lost their tax exempt status. But, you know, munis, I, I don't think are really in danger. And so we're going to have to watch all this play out. But uh, again, it's it's much less of a of a philosophical debate and much more of how can I make the numbers work? Yeah, and I, I think we all agree with the rate of uh, of spending, especially since the uh, the debt ceiling was kicked in on June fifth. Uh, even more of a concern, right? They're going to have to fill that gap. Now, want to we want to shift a little bit to markets and and investment implications around the election, both before leading up to it as well as post. And so, so Mike, I want to really get your thoughts and. How do markets generally perform during the last year of a presidential term? Yeah, historically, markets perform pretty well during an election year, the last year of the four-year presidential cycle. Uh, by our numbers, if you go back to 1928, the S&P 500 has returned an average about of about 7.5% in election years. That's the second best of the four years. Um, so actually, the year that we're in now, the third year, is historically the best uh, for the markets, which makes a little bit of sense when you think about it. You know, sort of the um, the the midterm elections are behind. Yeah, you haven't really gotten into the presidential election yet, so that tends to be the year when stuff can get done. You know, we're maybe uh, an exception to that rule in the uh, dysfunctional Congress of, of today. But there's really not much of a pattern in terms of you know sort of whether the president is running for re-election or whether he's you know already served his uh, second and final term, so we know it's going to be a new president. But you know generally it's a it's a pretty good year uh, for the markets going going into the election year. Right, and what about the political party of you know a lame duck president or a president seeking re-election like like uh, President Biden? Any any sort of difference there, uh, whether you know his, he's a Democrat or if it were to be a Republican? Yeah, I mean, you know, historically the market performs better under a Democrat. Um, that that just is true. Uh, the difference in market performance is actually pretty significant. Uh, depends a bit on the time frame, which index you're using, of course. And this is one of those things where you can make the numbers work in in all sorts of different ways, sort of depending on on your starting point. Um, but generally, S and P 500 has been five to six percent better under a Democrat president 
than a Republican president. But the key here is whether there's actually any relationship um, to that. Uh, you know, there's there's a gazillion factors that affect what's going on in the market. And the election is maybe one tiny one that that happens. And, you know, when you when you look at I'll just give one example, you know, President Bush, uh, George W. Bush, you know, market didn't do well during his term. Well, his term was bookended by 9-11 early in his term and by the financial crisis uh, at, at the end of his term. So the market, you know, had a really, really rough ride. Then President Obama came in, Democratic president came in, and he caught the upswing post-financial crisis, right? So how much of that was sort of, you know, who was in the White House? Probably not much at all, right? But it it, it skews the numbers into sort of making you feel um, like, you know, the market wasn't good during a Republican presidency, and it was good during a Democrat's presidency. So I, I try to, you know, tell investors to be really careful of that stuff. I find it sort of fun and interesting as an anecdote, but not really as a great sort of, you know, measure of of how the market might react. That's always uh, a matter of how you frame things, right? <laughs> and the lens in which you look at. What about directly following uh, the election? How do markets generally tend to perform? And adding to that, does it really matter? Uh, guessing based off your previous comments, not really. The uh, whether it's a Democrat or Republican that wins. You know, it, it's interesting. Let's just take the last six presidential elections. And it's kind of fun to do this, right? And then again, you can just pick any any date you want. But Last six presidential elections. So since 2000, the market has gone up the day after election day in every one. But a week later, it's been up three times and it's been down three times. You know, so I, I think that's a great sort of illustration of whatever. Pick the time frame that you that you want post election. You can probably make the numbers work in in whatever way. But I think I, I use a week just to sort of illustrate that it's ah, it, it, it's been a wash basically. Um, and I think part of that is, and and maybe we'll talk a little bit more about this, but, you know, people try to make big generalizations. So-and-so won the presidency, such-and-such happened in the congressional election, and therefore X is going to happen, and it's going to be good for this part of the market. Policy just doesn't work that way. Um, you know, it takes forever to get policy through. So, the president may have campaigned on the campaign trial about 50 things that he's going to do when he takes office, and he'll do three of those things and um, maybe, you know, succeed on three of them. So and, and they might take a year to even see whether they get results. So I, I've always tell investors to be really wary of, of that stuff. Right. And you know, looking at you, you talked a little bit about it earlier, you know, uh, odds are we may have a split Congress. Right. So does that impact potential market performance or at least perception that a, a stalemate uh, will create a lot of difficulties to push any sort of legislation through? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the, the legend is that gridlock in Washington is good um, for the markets. And I, I think in some ways that that bears out because, you know, gridlock or or split congress or split congress in a different you know president and the uh, presidential party in the white house you know tends to control the sort of wildest direction right it, it tends to you, neither party overreaches you have to reach compromise and and that tends to be uh, tends to be good you know interestingly the configuration that we have right now the democrat in the white house and a split congress has been pretty good for the market historically it's also the rarest one. So this is only the fifth year 
out of the last 120 that we've had this particular configuration in Washington. So it's been good for the markets, but it's a very small uh, sample size. So historically, the best configuration has been a Democrat president with Republicans controlling both the House and the Senate uh, at the same time. Again, probably means neither party is able to overreach and and compromise uh, has to be found. So um, one other interesting factor that I like to share with people is that there is almost no difference in the market performance at all when we have a unified government whether it is all Republicans or all Democrats. The you know the number of times that that's happened, the market has been almost exact uh, in its performance. So very strange kind of numbers that you can sort of work out here. But at the end of the day, I still think this is, a, you know, it's all pretty small factor in the overall market environment. Great. And just looking at, you know, some sectors, right? And obviously you look at, you know, not to pick on Democrats, right? But like to, you know, attack oil, right? And some of the carbon uh, carbon fuels or fossil fuels and or going after big tech, right? You know, conversely, you, know, you look at Republicans and you know, they have some of their, their hot buttons as well. Any sectors that could either benefit or, or conversely be negatively impacted by the outcomes of the election? Yeah, I think sectors is a perfect example of, of that sort of, it's easy to kind of overthink this. And, you know, I, I think you're right, sort of, you know, oil and gas versus green energy, for instance. So when Biden uh, won the presidency, there was this kind of this assumption that it would be good for green energy. And look, that's played out to, to some degree. The Inflation Reduction Act of, of last year certainly, you know, is a boost to to that uh, to that sector. But you know, how much of a boost is it? And and that's going to play out over years and years. I mean, the money that's involved in the Inflation Reduction Act is going to take, you know, five, six, seven years to really to get out there. So, you know, I think this is a place where, you know, investors should be pretty wary. Again, presidential candidates say all sorts of things that are their priorities, right? And then when they get to the office, they realize that they can't focus on everything. And so even if you feel in a campaign like a candidate is really emphasizing something and you're really thinking, oh, that that candidate wins, I'm really going to take a look at that. You just never know. It, it may be that that has no interest on Capitol Hill. And it may be that they're, you know, the, the configuration in Congress is wrong to move that uh, priority. So that's why I really tell people to to, to be wary of, of, you know, trying to make those connections too, too, uh, too heavily. Yeah, Mike, you, you, you noted that October has been one of the craziest months <laughs> in your last 30 years, which is, which, wow, that really, I think, sums it up. But, uh, I mean, we, we still have almost another year. I mean, where this is November while we're recording this of 23. And, and, you know, so we don't even know what, what's ahead of us. But, but I'll, I'll share that, you know, in a little over 20 years of doing this, I mean, I almost compare it to the, the, the way the emotions run. It's almost like when I'm cheering for my favorite sports team and they lose, there's like this psychological effect that I just, you know, I'm bummed out for the rest of the day or maybe the rest of the week, depending on what, you know, what level they lost at. But, you know, what do you say to those? Because, because it has happened to me where investors have come and say, Hey, I don't want to do anything until the election's over. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to deploy money or I want to take money out of investments. And I mean, it's happened, right. And it, it does happen. And I guess what would be your words of wisdom to, Say, hey, don't do that. I mean, we've talked about some of the some of the data, but I don't know. What what are your thoughts around that as as much we can to keep people from focusing on such a short-term period? Yeah, Matt, I think your sports analogy is exactly right. I I tell people, 
you know, my biggest advice is to just not get your investing too wrapped up in politics. Uh, elections are emotional events for a lot of people. I, I expect 2024 is going to bring out a lot of passion, a lot of controversy, a lot of anxiety uh, for investors. But it's really important for investors to keep focused on their long-term goals. As I said, the, the reality is that the actual policies that could be impacted by next year's elections will take months or a year or more to unfold. And they're probably going to be really, really different in the end from, from what was sort of talked about on, on the campaign. Many of those policy proposals will never happen. Uh, they just you know can't make it through a, a divided Congress. So I tell people, be really wary of the pundits who say the election outcome, whatever it is, is good for these stocks. It's good for these companies. It's good for these sectors because this policy or this tax change is definitely going to happen. There is nothing in Washington that is definitely going to happen. So um, usually the opposite is what is going to happen. That's just not it's just not how Washington works. So keep your emotions that you might feel around the election out of your investing decisions. Stick to your long term goals. Uh, talk to people like you yourselves um, and for advice and and maybe to sort of talk them off the edge when they're disappointed that their team didn't win or or didn't perform as well as hope uh, as they hoped on election night. Yeah, no, great, Mike. Uh, really appreciate your your time today. You're joining us. Uh, really appreciate your insights and uh, also appreciate our relationship with Charles Schwab uh, as our primary custodian. So, so thank you. Really appreciate everything. And if you are having trouble navigating the, the turbulent markets or the political environment, you know, feel free to reach out to us at centurawealth.com or give us a call at 858-771-8500. Hey, and just real quick, I think, Mike, we've got a lot of months to go. Where where can listeners uh, find you on your on your podcast as well to, to hear about everything that's going on in D.C.? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I have a podcast called Washington Wise. It comes out uh, every couple of weeks and, yeah, just kind of tries to draw the connections between the market and what's happening in, in Washington. So, you know, you can find that on Apple or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. So give it a listen. All right, guys, thanks so much. We appreciate all of you and thank you for listening today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. 
past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.